the podcast, Coaches Rising Podcast. I'm Joel, and this is episode number 47. And I'm super excited today because I'm going to be talking with Thomas Hubel. And he's someone whose work has deeply inspired me over the years. As I'll mention at the start of this conversation, when I first heard him speaking, I immediately just stopped what I was doing and I uh, I started writing down notes about what he was saying and I was captivated. We're going to be exploring today the way that he works with individuals. He works a lot with groups doing collective trauma work. We're going to explore today how he works with individuals, how he has refined his capacity to attune to others in a way that allows him to perceive the origins of the conditioning that's kind of uh, a core part of the topic they're bringing up with him in conversation. And that allows for a very kind of nuanced, skillful, subtle way of working with people that allows for a deep transformation. I think that Thomas is an example for me of the the new wave of work that's emerging in the world that's oriented around attunement to attunement. Heidegger predicted that we would move out of the era of attunement to technology into a poetic era where we attune to attunement itself. That's like where we, we love what is for its own sake. And then as we're doing that, things unfold and reveal their depths. As usual, if you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd be grateful or leaving a review. That would be amazing. Without further ado, here is Thomas Hubel. Thomas, so great to be with you today. How's things? Oh, good. I'm very happy to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm really excited. I remember, I think it was uh, maybe nine years ago, and I listened to a conversation you had with Terry Patton on Beyond Awakening. And I was, um, you know, in my spare time to make money, I was painting houses, you know. And actually, mm-hmm. I love doing that work. But I remember hearing the things you were saying, and I, was, and I stopped in my tracks and immediately I started to, to make notes on what you were saying. And, and, and it felt to me like your perspective was so fresh. And, mm. and so, like, it, you know, it really warms my heart that now here we are uh, all these years later and we're going to dive in and I'm going to get to ask you a bunch of questions. So I'm really excited. Very lovely. And uh, ever since we had our first conversation, I felt also this lovely sense of resonance and that we have similar interests and we want to promote similar things in the world. So I'm very happy to be here with you. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, we're going to explore a lot of things today, but um, I, I, I think, you know, for me, you're one of the people who are um, at the leading edge of a kind of work that's emerging in the world, you know, working with... Um, it, in presence, working on the level of energy, working with trauma. And um, I see that emerging in, in, you know, in in the coaching industry too, you know, like different kinds of non-goal oriented coaching uh, that are working in an unfolding way. So I want to kind of explore like, uh, what is it that you're doing in your work? So maybe you could, um, let's start with the question, what for you is at the heart of facilitating transformation in others. And I think that will lead to a conversation about, you know, what, what is the map that you have of, of who we are as humans and, and how change happens? So first of all, 
I deeply trust the intelligence in every human being or in the intelligence of life, let's say it is. It's bigger than human being. And, um, and I believe the intelligence in all of us is the driving resource for transformation. And so one, one I think, foundational or like a, an ability that is really foundational is to be able to listen to the, to the movement that wants to happen anyway for a person. So there's always a river. If the river is blocked, we will, we will have somewhere stagnation, we will have somewhere too much water and somewhere too little. And our job, I believe, as facilitators, as coaches, as therapists, as people who work with people, is to be able to listen to it. And now that's the point. Like there are many intellectual and very refined intellectual models of how to do that and how human development works. And they're all great. And I think it's, it's good for us to use them, to know them. But that doesn't yet make a great facilitator. A great facilitator is somebody that can walk that knowledge and be connected to all those levels of development in him or herself. And that's where it's, it's going to get challenging because presence is the, the summary of the integrated development that we went through. And past is the accumulation of all the unintegrated history. So if the integrated history is what is present in the moment and gives a kind of a space for the future, for the potential, what we grow into, the higher consciousness, like our development. So then, then it's the challenge for every good facilitator is how to become the tool that we often speak about. And I think that's where I think our conversation can go deeper today is... Um, how do we, you know, it's a different thing if I write a PhD about human development or I often say, like, if I'm a plumber or an electrician, if I go with the cables and I know how to put, it's lovely to have a, an overview, but actually what makes the electricity flow is the right uh, electricity network or if there are, you know, pipes are stuck in the house, you need a plumber to open them. And so the energetic work is really that my nervous system can feel in your nervous system because I'm present enough and I'm integrated enough that my nervous system becomes again like an open instrument, like, if, like a guitar or a musical instrument. And that's, I think, where together with the knowledge that we have, we become very effective. So maybe that's it's a framing of the basis of the conversation, maybe. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and I'd love to ask you, like, how do we actually, you know, be, refine our instruments so that we can work in that way? But this, just before I do, there's something about our times which I think are calling for that. You know, that we've um, perhaps in some ways, like, reached the peak of, of like, the Enlightenment era where, of, of rationalism where we, you know, we were able to, um, create so many amazing things through our logical, rational minds, and um, but it, in some ways, it's kind of, kind of, we've we've become distant from our immediate experience in a way that I think is uh, perhaps I don't know if I could say this with 
total confidence, but perhaps responsible for many of the crises we find ourselves in. So I don't know if you could speak into that. Yeah. The fact that we can think things that we cannot do, I believe is already part of a traumatized world in many ways. That we can read books about human development, but we actually still live in a lot of old patterns, means that the mind in the nervous system is disconnected from the emotional and physical experience. And then, and then it looks like, oh, it's intelligent. Yeah, it's intelligent to be able to know that, but it's also intelligent to know that the unity of my physical, emotional, and mental experience is fragmented. And the basis of trauma, which means every time a human being goes through a very overwhelming experience that is highly stressful and needs to be, needs a dissociation in order to be able to stay in the moment. So it's actually trauma, the process of trauma that happens in us, in our nervous system is a very intelligent function, but it always goes hand in hand with the fragmentation. It means that my mind, my emotions, and my body don't communicate the same message and are fragmented enough to continue, if not integrated, to continue a fragmentation in my life that I will suffer from. And so that means that we are, because that's why I speak so much about collective trauma in the last 10, 15 years, because I believe we are all of us have been born into a traumatized world, more or less. There are so many big collective traumatizations. It goes on for thousands of years. None of us really knows how a non-traumatized world looks like. And that's amazing. It's like you have lived in your apartment your whole life, and now somebody comes. You've never made a step outside of your apartment, and then somebody comes and asks you, how does the house look like from the outside? And you can't say because you've never left your apartment. And I think that's, that's in a way, there are many collective trauma symptoms that we call normal. And like a basic underlying element is, is uh, separation. Like that we feel separate, distant, numb, shut down. And, um, and and that leads to othering, to and then we know it's kind of the human yeah. story. And but it for a facilitator it means that I actually don't know what I don't know, and I need to put a lot of energy into clarifying myself every time I run into a difficulty, every time I have a difficult client that seems to be outside. I often used to say to people that are that I supervise, like when they say, I had a difficult client, and I said, yeah, where is the client, outside or in you? Because the difficulty is in me, of course. If I have a difficult session with somebody, and then it's the first thing that I need to look at this myself, and if I don't find out what happened there, I need to have somebody in my life that can give me supervision. That's a prerequisite, I believe, for every facilitator, because otherwise, we, we don't know what we don't know. So I think to be mentored is a very important element for all of us that work with clients. 
And that makes, that helps me to, to tune my own instrument because I cannot do it alone. And often people who want to do it alone express a trauma symptom because many of us have been traumatized in relation. That's why we try to do it alone, but it doesn't work. So having meaningful relations, exposing ourselves to mentoring and supervision and, um, and being very sincere that in my own contemplation, I'm, I'm going to look, okay, what actually happened? Even if it's small things, or if I run in my daily life into difficulties, difficulties are my teachers. And if I take it that way, I think that's, that's a big part of how, how to, to train that presence. And also to see that, that once I cannot walk my talk, it means that I have some work to do until I can add the word, my word, what I say and what I do is the same thing. I'm just thinking in my own life, you know, where I've been a meditation practitioner for 15, 16, 17 years. And, you know, I'm continually humbled or, um, you know, like where, where I'm basically my word and my actions are not aligned, you know, where I have certain spiritual ideals about who I am. And then I go and um, interact with my family in a harsh way you know and and so uh you know in the recent years that's become my practice is like re really in those moments you know am i able to to be curious and and humble uh you know and not to and to look at me myself turn back and look at myself and so so as so as you speak i get a sense of the importance of this relational work as you know, as um, in any kind of growth endeavor, be that spiritual, psychological, the relational is so important. Um, could you say something about, how, you know, and maybe this speaks to how we refine ourselves as instruments, as facilitators, but how, how do you help people to begin to become more integrated, you know, and to, um, to move out of perhaps the, the, the kind of um, dissociated or abstracted kind of parts themselves and become more integrated how do you what's that what's that journey like and how do you do it yeah first of all um the i want to come back to something you said before because it was very yeah. beautiful it's like i through my own meditation practice i became more humble in the western world it's often even spiritual development is about kind of to supersize me, like how do I become more successful, more of this, more of this. And in the true spiritual practice, it's, it's also true in a way that if we liberate energy, many things in our life will start to flow more, will be more compassionate, more loving, more clear, more inclusive. But we will also get more humble because we learn to bow down, you know, to life. We, to the wisdom of life that teaches us through so many small situations in daily life, through books, through teachers, through dharmas. So, but it's in very small situations. And to be humble means that I often say a, a more experienced practitioner, you recognize when somebody stops asking how long it's going to take. You know, there are many people say, how long do I need to do shadow work? Or how long do I need to do my spiritual practice until 
it seems like as if there is somewhere to arrive where we arrive and and actually the more wise people are the ones where you feel that they started to walk and there's such a simplicity but also such a power in the synchronization of being where we are in our work i often say if i know that i'm going to walk forever i have time for you and if forever is not very 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 long so it's if i know that i'm walking forever that my death is not running the show that's very important i think a very fundamental aspect of humility is that i see that i project my own death my finite nature onto the spiritual path and that means that i am in a hurry and many people are in a hurry and either and the hurry usually is based upon fear there's some existential fear that we have that we need to be faster than we are and i think that's also in the heart of facilitation if i am in a hurry to be a good coach to be a good facilitator a good therapist then sometimes i create a subtle pressure onto my clients because their growth is my success and that's a fundamental trap yeah. so very experienced practitioners they don't define themselves by the growth of their clients they are defined by themselves just by their inner presence they don't do it if you grow means i'm good and i think that's one element of um that's very important for facilitation because if i am in that trap i will create more pressure onto my clients and i will get the backlash of it somehow and which doesn't mean that we don't want to be competent precise loving that we need to do supervision where we actually miss the points so we we want to develop the art like this, we want to be skillful but we don't want to define ourselves by like as successful by the success of the other person's development so that's i think one important thing and the other is that the relational work is so beautiful and because we all grow up and we are like deeply relational beings if you see like you you're your young father and i'm sure that you have the most touching moments with your child in the closeness the intimacy like there are also challenging moments of course but there are such sweet and deep moments where it shows itself that as human beings we are deeply relational and and as much as your child needs you in this time you and your partner like to really find a way into life that our body our emotions our mind and our soul really want to be in life and that's a gift that we can give to our children at the beginning of their lives and for many of the clients we work with i mean for some of them that happened really well but for some of them that didn't go so well and so whatever we didn't get all the vitamins r like relation vitamin r is is a crucial vitamin in being able to be grounded be emotionally vulnerable and open be 
able to be present, concentrated, compassionate, loving, clear. So all the tools that a leader needs, all the tools that a, a facilitator needs, actually grow through the interrelatedness of life. And then I know that I am not a separate particle. I'm not a separate one, a separate guy with another guy, but that I'm able, that my nervous system is able, like a laptop, if you take two laptops and you mirror them. So my laptop shows the same thing like your laptop shows. So when you go with Team Viewer or join me or something into another person's laptop, you can see how their desktop looks like. And, and that's actually a capacity that our nervous system has. We all did it so many times. You know, when you see a child and the child is crawling around and one day, because crawling is the coolest thing ever then. At this moment in your life, like crawling is fantastic. You know, you never were so fast. And then there's a moment when you look at the mother or the father and you see something new. And the same thing that happens in that moment happened over and over again. We copy paste from the world and inspiration into our nervous system. And that inspiration, we start to practice and practice until it becomes wired in our body. And then walking is the coolest thing ever for some time. And then our mirror neurons, the frontal part of our vagal nervous system is like a scanner and scans a new thing and a new thing. And then we see somebody riding a bike and say, the first time I want this. When I learned walking, I didn't want to ride a bike, but now I want this. And for every facilitator, it's an interesting thing because that subject-object transcendence that I can that I can have space enough to be inspired by something new. And I think you with your with your work and the coaches rising, it's like you inspire many people in the phase also where there's something new open. We can learn about new aspects of life. And we weren't open for some time before because we had another coolest thing ever. Mm. But if we transcend that coolest thing ever, we make space for the future to land. And once I understand that, I say, oh my God, we are all living somewhere within this circle of being inspired, wiring new inspiration, practicing it, making it an art and finding a new thing. And so that's where the relation, we are all wired and learning is a deeply relational process. And I think that's why the healing work or the integration work or the, the work where we tune our instrument, I believe, is so beautiful when it happens in this attuned relation that sees when somebody sees us deeply and sees us in the core. I think that's where everybody's heart melts. Yeah. Yeah, beautifully said. I, I want to ask you about that, just a reflection. Um, for me, so many people come into coaching um, and they're wanting something in their lives and actually um, it, it's like they sense a, a sense of lack, you know, and, and that they want to be in that place wherever it is, you know, like with 
the job or the, the project they want to create. And it's in some ways it's compensatory for, for that sense of lack. And so, um, yeah. And I, I think that can be the same for coaches too. Like I'm find my worth by helping you to get to that place. And then only if you get to that place, then I'm worthy. So, and that, that can kind of set up this experience of, of like always leaving the moment in some way, you know, or, want, or wanting to leave the moment. And I think, so there's something about being able to, um, you know, to, to kind of have people um, recognize that sense of lack mm-hmm. and the coach too, and then begin to come from a different place. Beautiful. That, that I think is, is quite important in this work. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I think you're you're really spot on, and and I believe there is two things. Um, there is the part because trauma always comes with a lack. So in the in the trauma history, in our trauma history, in family systems where parents are traumatized, it's like the the oil the pump that brings up energy into the family system through the parent is not working fully. So there's always a sense, the 100% energy of the system are reduced to 70. So we all need to deal with 70% energy as the 100. And this creates a feeling of scarcity, of craving, which is basically what we see in the world. And then you said, if I as a coach or a facilitator didn't really inquire enough what actually motivates me to do this work. Because for many of us, it's a mix of a vocation, but the vocation comes out of abundance, not out of uh, scarcity. Right. But then the compensatory movement is that I need your acknowledgement in order to feel good. And we have to take care of this part because this part is what gets us into trouble. This part is if, you, if I'm leaning in too much and I want to support you too much and then I make you codependent because I want you actually to be codependent because that gives me safety or I'm leaning out, I'm not yet in my flow. And, and so you spoke to a very important principle that we learn to discern what is your vocation as a facilitator, and there you work out of abundance. There you know why you're doing what you're doing and how it's connected to your core intelligence, to your essence. And then there is the lack, the scarcity in myself as a facilitator, but also in the people that I'm working with. And so if somebody comes to me, I need to know very clearly what am I supporting in my clients? Am I supporting their core intelligence or am I supporting their graving that is actually not healthy for them? And I think especially in the business world, when it's about success, about growth, about getting somewhere, for us, it's always good to see, am I working on the ideal or am I working on the real? The ideal is a defense system. That's how we dream we could be. And the real is how we are. And from there is aspiration, like the natural creative intelligence that wants to develop. And it's very important to which part do I support in my clients? 
because I don't want to support what comes out of their disconnected parts, but I want to support very much where the core flow is actually happening. Yeah, so I wanted to underline uh, what you said. It's very important. Yeah, yeah, it, it does feel like as the sense of um, lack or maybe they're coming from a part, you know, that, that um, is protecting them. But as the, as the agitation dies down and then there's a kind of sense of integration, then, then there's a kind of non-strategic or a, a kind of authentic, like you say, like this um, impulse, you know, the vocation that arises out, out of fullness. And then the, the kind of action that comes with that always seems to have a, a, great, a kind of greater intelligence and grace to it that then leads to a, a, a greater impact. You know, uh, yeah. Because it's relational. And that's you're so beautiful what you said. If the, the traumatized part or the strongly conditioned part, the shadow part gets integrated, it's that a person, sometimes people get afraid that they lose their drive. But because sometimes our fear and our trauma gives us a, a shot of excitement and drive. So at the beginning, it might even look like if somebody heals or integrates that that form of drive starts to disintegrate and then people get scared. And, oh, I'm losing my drive. No, you're coming back to your natural drive that is not being driven by adrenaline, but actually by the creativity of life. Mm. And so from that well, the world's included in our actions. And that's... Now, in our time, especially important because the climate crisis is partly based on a fear-based, hyperactive business system that is out of touch with the natural environment because we are, we are spinning in, our, in ourselves, basically, without being able to relate our success and that the natural environment, the environment of our employees, the environment, you know, of everybody who is part of the system of an organization is included. And that you can do in what you said, when, you, it's, when it's relational and essential, all of this is included in our success. Hmm. So that's, I think that's why um, this work is so important also in our time. Let me ask, like, when I know you work with individuals and you have groups and then, you know, you're working with the collective, but also individuals in groups. Let me, let's start with the individual. When you're with somebody and you're doing some work, uh, like, what, what happens for you? Like, what are you looking for in the person and, um, and, and what's happening for you? You know, I'd love to, I know that might be a, a kind of very general question, but perhaps you could, you could begin to say, like, you know, as you're sat opposite someone or stood opposite from someone and they start to share what's happening. Yeah. Um, it's a bit, um, of course, it's a bit hard to describe this now quickly in this little time that we have, but maybe yeah. the principle. Yeah. Um, so every time, I work and we have pretty large groups. So we often take a person and work with them in front of the group. Um, and so one thing that happens is that every time somebody asks a question, like I feel kind of empty inside. 
I'm not particularly looking for something special. All I do is I listen because everybody comes with a with an issue, something, something that drives my question. And I often say questions are walking our evolution. So our questions are the walking expression of our evolution. So because the answer and the question are separate. Because once you answer a question, the question and the answer unify. So you actually, if you hold a real question and you find an answer, the answer is not just a rational answer. The answer, a real answer is actually a unification of that part of consciousness in the person. Which means every time we have a question, the question expresses usually a, a, a symptom on the surface of a person's life. I'm missing this in my professional life. I'm missing this in my private life. I'm having difficulties as a father with this or whatever. I, I don't find my vocation. And um, so, but what I do is every, every time a person asks something, he or she takes actually a flashlight in the matrix of the inner world and shines it on that place. So what I do or what, what happens for me is I'm, I'm empty and I'm listening, like as if I have no idea who that person is, where that person came from. And, and then, and that's for sure also happened to me through my four year meditation retreat. I did a lot of, intense practice and so many things also opened up for me and to me like in in during that time and also during the 18 years that I'm working now like this got more and more refined and then it's like as if the inner world of that person like my nervous system and the nervous system of the person go into like a synchronized mode as if I can get a feeling, not only a feeling, like a, a sense of their inner world. Yeah. And it shows me the symptom that they describe, what is actually the root of that symptom. So, and then I, um, in there many ways, and I think that's why this time here is most probably not sufficient enough. There are many ways that it, at least what I've learned through this work and my studies and my whole contemplative studies um, is that from conception on and also before our ancestors, when we say, oh, our nervous system is not 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, but actually thousands of years old. And there's a, it's like a huge library the nervous system is an amazingly intelligent supercomputer. Our body is an amazingly intelligent biocomputer. And our, our nervous systems are not as separate as it sometimes looks like. So there's kind of a cloud computing going on. And so when we tune in with each other, it's like we learn to represent each other in each other, which, by the way, is happening anyway. It's not like a big, big magical thing. It's like every child uses this, every parent uses this uh, mechanism. Because as you know, if you speak to a baby, you most probably don't speak to your baby. Let's say you carry a baby and you speak to the baby and immediately you will feel 
well, when I imagine or when I really talk to a baby, my nervous system goes into a different state. Definitely. I talk with a different rhythm. I talk with a different tone of voice. I talk with a different quality. And basically everybody who has a child knows this, or most of the people. And so why? And the great thing is, you know how to talk to a baby, but you don't lose your grown-up perspective. You are still a grown-up father that can take care of a baby. You're not becoming a five-month-old baby. And that's very interesting. It means that your nervous system has the capacity to modulate itself to different levels of consciousness, different levels of, of age. And because you won't talk to a baby like you talk to your business partner. And if you do, you have to ask yourself serious questions. But basically, we, you know, and even to a 16-year-old son, you talk differently than to a five-year-old, uh, five-month-old son. And, and we, we might say, yeah, of course. Yeah, but it's not so clear, of course, because the same mechanism we are using in facilitation to have what I call the elevator of consciousness, that my nervous system, so if somebody tells me about the symptom, my nervous system can go and track, oh, this person at three years old was hurt, was hurt. And then the, the, um, the pain, the difficulty today goes back to a very early trauma that holds a lot of fear and the fears that the person comes with to me. When I listen to fear, it's like some people say, oh, I'm afraid. And then they say, but for, for professional facilitators, it's not enough to know that somebody is afraid. It's a which fear? Is this a fear of a three week old child that has been left alone in the hospital after birth? Is this, a, is this a five-year-old fear because of somebody that has been beaten as a child? Or a 12-year-old fear of somebody that has been bullied in school? And when somebody says, I'm afraid, like a resonance in my nervous system can tell me what kind of fear the person speaks about. Because if somebody comes and says, oh, I'm, I'm very afraid of making a big investment, the fear has nothing to do with the investment of the person's business life. The fear has something to do with the early childhood life of this person, most probably. And so if I supported this person now, I miss actually that the real question the person comes with is an integration question. I don't want to, this person to come back to me with every big investment with the same question. I want to look at the real question, move the development further with this person until this question drops away. And so the question finds its answer and uni gets unified when the, the three-month-old fear gets integrated and then the development of the person can continue and that part can slowly grow up. Right. So that, that energy flow, you know, the, there's something integrated and then there's a flow again. You know? That's right. That's, it's integrated and that person won't come with the same question back to me. But if I, if I really relate as if this question was a, a, a business question, in most of the cases, it's not. When people say, oh, I'm going to university to an exam and I'm really scared. Yeah, 
there is a kind of a social convention that that's true, that when you go to an exam, you're scared, but those fears have nothing to do with your exam. They have something to do with your history, with your past, not with your uh, exam tomorrow. And if we were to really address those questions on the level of development where they happen, we would be much faster in the kind of individual and social development. Yeah. And often we try to address it on the level of development where the person is today. And I say, but we are for, for us doing this work. So when the elevator of my consciousness coming back to your question can track the person's real process, I can create a relation with the three-year-old boy within this business leader or whatever, within the person that I work with and Verbally or even non-verbally, it creates a new level of trust because for many people, their parents haven't been around when they really needed them. And or the parents were part of the hurt. And so it needs a new relation that allows us to relax together, to digest together, because a lot of the past is undigested stuff. Imagine the hamburgers that you ate 20 years ago are still somehow in your body. And every time you move, you feel, oh, it's heavy. But that's how unintegrated stuff works. It's undigested life because we didn't have the right support to digest it together. Yeah. Beautiful. And that's, that's, I think, one part, as I said, I, can, I could talk now for hours about how this looks like for me, but that's one example of how, yeah. how such a process might look like. Um, so many questions come up, like I feel very th excited to be in this space with you. Uh, I, um, you know, like I, I wonder about how we might be able to refine our sensitivity so that, you know, I can, under I, I get this idea that people have a certain um, signature or something, you know, that when they bring, when they bring this topic, you know, that you can, you can begin to sense in, back down but it's like the, the that that kind of perceptive capacity to be able to sense oh like this is the three month old self or the three-year-old self i think is quite incredible how, like how did you you know develop that capacity mm. yeah and I, I i get that's a huge question but uh i i'm curious you know it's complex a lot happened for me in, in this time, I think when I, when I had a, and I started my meditation practice when I was 19, when I was 26, I went on this four year meditation time retreat thing. And, um, and all the years after many years, I, I had a very intense practice. So I'm sure that that on the one hand, my contemplative practice is a big part of it. And not only in the sense of presencing, but also in the refinement of what I would be called in our work, subtle, subtle energy competencies, so that we exchange a lot of subtleties and we don't get trained in school or university or so to develop those things. I often say, I think what we need is a, is a combination of Hogwarts, Harry Potter and Harvard science. Like, like that we need the Hogwarts aspect because I believe that 
the magics of life when we don't talk about magical thinking as a level of consciousness, but when we talk about the, the energetic precision and the energetic dimension of life, the information field is something that I believe many people that work with people are actually very interested in. Absolutely. And, and, but we don't have a lot of institutions like Hogwarts where we can learn this stuff. You know, what, you what's that? Is it Hawk? What's it called? Hogwarts. I don't yeah. know. Maybe oh, Hogwarts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. yeah. Sorry. I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 I thought you said something else. Yeah. 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 From Harry Hogwarts. Potter. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Potter. And, and so the, like we need those academies, you know, where we can really study those energetics. And there is a lot of knowledge about this stuff. And the whole mystical traditions are full of this knowledge, but it's something that somebody needs to kind of really go for and find because it's not like very open. But the like it's not very open to find. So people really need to practice to to go to study and to learn about it. But there is an amazing kind of amazingly rich knowledge on how our body is built and how many levels of energetic development are actually present. And so I believe my own my own curiosity and willingness to really go for this is one thing my contemplative practice is another thing and also that i worked uh, i'm sure with hundred thousand or more people in the last 18 years like i i also do this every day for many hours most probably and so this gives me also like a lot of practice time and i'm saying often that in every group that i give i learn a lot because with every person that we go through a process, I always learn something. There's one new facet, even if it's subtle, I, I go home and I'm enriched. And so, and I, I believe all of it is, is um, according to your question, is, is what, what helped me to develop that capacity. And it's something that we also train. I mean, we work with many also consultants or therapists or so that where we train those capacities. And so that, that we literally learn that my nervous system and your nervous system can create a synchronized field. And that synchronized field, of course, is numb in the places where we have shadows. But when we do the integration work we spoke about before, and we do the the training, the skill building. So then I can refine my nervous system and I, I learn to listen to fine details that happen all the time. That's why it's called subtle. Because when I'm mentally hypnotized by what somebody says to me, there's only 20% of me is listening to what the person tells me. 80% of my awareness is listening to what the person doesn't tell me. And so in the moment... When, when the person speaks, uh, I'm looking at many other things than what the, my mind registers the intellectual question. But there are so many other things that are very interesting. For example, somebody speaks and in the body of the person, suddenly the energy, uh, the, the energy is, um, is, I see that the person pulls the energy out of the feet. For me, that's important. A person speaks to me and I see that the eyes are not looking in a synchronized way at me. Or the person, I ask a person, 
how do you feel in your body and your emotion? And then the person, well, yeah, I feel good. Yeah, somebody we up and there looking up. Yeah, yeah, just thinking. I mean, that's more known. Yeah. And so, like, there's so many subtle hints that we can look at all the time that express what's really going on. And and I think that everybody who wants to practice this uh, this stuff is is that's the I think that the real toolkit we need in order to do this this kind of tracking. And then, of course, it goes deeper. We can, whatever, that we include ancestral information when we work with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it, I mean, so I'm thinking of like one gateway being through um, the body, you know, and, and but then like so felt experience, you know, like sense, sensing the moment, felt experience of, of what's here and how, for me, that just seems to be a kind of, I was going to say bottomless pit, but it's more like the the, the uh, endless depths of how that That's that right. can be refined, you know. So that in the beginning, like there's maybe more um, gross level kind of signs, you know, like somebody says something, but their you know their shoulders are uptight, and then it just gets in, you know more and more subtle. So so like I can yeah, the sense somebody saying something, but this the sense of um, energy, uh, you know, like that doesn't fit with what they're saying or like, yeah. And, and, and in my own experience of how like increasingly there's a sense of like when somebody's out of like, like, oh, I might, they, they might be talking about something, but I'm feeling fear. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm picking up some kind of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then the question is like, is that the, the fear that they're feeling whilst they're speaking or is, is it my fear? But I'm pretty good at, being able to discern. So I'm just kind of exploring myself now, this realm of subtle perception and how we might begin to develop that in our experience. And and then just to throw a bit of a curveball, but like, you know, thinking of people like David Abraham, who wrote The Spell of the Sensuous, you know, this idea that like we've become so focused on linguistics and, and um, lang- you know, thinking through language that we've lost touch with the, with the the language of the world around us, you know, which is not not rational, you know, and, and the incredible um, communication um, that's possible in so many dimensions around us. But but yeah, so I threw I threw a mix of stuff in there. But I, I like the stuff when you said. First of all, I agree. When for us, it's important to understand the narrative or the story that the person frames his or her experience with. And I think sometimes we need to, to dismantle a bit of that framework in order to get to a sense of feeling because the framework is part of the defense system. Why not to feel? And so, but, so there is a kind of this top-down intervention. And then there what you said is very powerful is, oh, when I feel the fear, first of all, it means that I, as a facilitator, I need to be willing to really be in the discomfort with the person that I'm working with. And so that I need to be able to feel what the person feels. That's already challenging because there is some kind of objective distance. But when we really take it seriously, 
I now, as I talk to you, happen in your brain. The Thomas that you see, you see me in your energy already. I am part of your perception. I am happening somewhere in your brain right now. And that's where I appear. So when I move, I'm actually moving your energy. And you do the same with me. So in fact, everybody is already in everybody. If you look at it more seriously or more precisely, it means every time I look at a person, the person's perception already happens in me. And that means the person affects my interior world already. I might be more or less aware of that, but it's happening anyway. So I'm just making this fact like a tool when I learn, oh, if that's happening anyway, so I actually, how do you feel in your body? My body knows exactly how you feel in your body. My emotions also know your emotions. Because if I'm open to you, and if I'm vulnerable, and if I really want to get to know you, which means I'm curious, which means these are all qualities a facilitator needs to have. So then I allow myself to be in touch with you. And I'm listening to your mental explorations, but I'm also listening while I do this. I'm not losing my emotional connection to you. I'm not losing my physical connection to you. And so one element how we can train it before we looked maybe at the more, more advanced version of it. But if I want to train that, I can say, okay, I pay attention to how synchronized the physical body, the emotional body and the mental expression are moment to moment and how much a person holds their experience in themselves or gives it into the conversation. How open is your energy field when you talk to me? And do you hold a lot of your information in you? Or do you speak it and it feels like I am included? Well, yeah, tell me what, what would that tell you? So, you know, it sounds like, you're, yeah, you're saying, yeah, when I'm speaking, am I open and you're included? That's a kind of, that's a good sign. It, or am I like, when I'm speaking, I'm ho holding it in. What would that tell you? It tells me that you didn't learn to really experience the part and we are just talking moment to moment so another moment you might be very open and share yourself generously but when you talk about this and usually people come to us when they talk about difficulties so that they didn't learn to really explore that part that their difficulty is connected to in relation with the world so it has been more privatized it's 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 they're holding it in themselves. And you also hear it when they speak, they're holding it in themselves. And often when people say it doesn't work in my life, it means that their word, which is creative, at the beginning of the Bible, the, 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 the God says light. It's like the word is creation. And so if I don't give my word into the world, it also doesn't unfold its creation. So usually in the parts where we hold ourselves back, also, our, our life doesn't flow so well. And, and then people say, yeah, but I'm, I'm not being seen. Yeah, it's right, because you're holding yourself here. So you can't be seen by the world. The world just tells you what you do. You, if I hold myself invisible, because I learned invisibility is better at home, because if I'm fully out there, I get punished. So for many people, being invisible was actually the, the most intelligent thing to do at home. 
But then, of course, when they come into the work, the business world, of course, they won't get promoted because they, that part actually makes them more invisible. And other people, they are more visible. Yeah. And then they, they get angry and they get envious and they get whatever. But actually, it's because of this. So when I pay attention to how somebody says something, how much related it is, and the other side, the person that gets spoken to, either feels a bit separate or when it's open, feels included. And every time somebody shares something where the other person feels included, it's interesting. Yeah. Because often people react unconsciously on the pattern information that the other person sends out. So if I'm not fully aware that actually you are scared, and that's why you are not telling it to me fully, then I think, oh, maybe you're distant and you don't like me. And then I react, and then I, because it triggers my pattern, and then I start avoiding you. So some people, they don't see that their boss actually is often scared, but they think the boss doesn't like them. Right. And they play the same pattern with the authority than they played with the parents. And the, and the boss does the same. So that's yeah. just where the energies meet and create moment-to-moment-to-moment -to -moment -to -moment patterns. And that's why, the last thing, what you said is very important because we as a facilitator need to know or learn to know where, what's this fear that I'm feeling? I listen to you and suddenly I feel afraid. And then if I'm able to really drop in, first of all, I'm not afraid to be afraid. So I'm, I'm enjoying the discomfort or the fear or the whatever I feel, the tension that another person transmits. And then I let myself explore it inside. And then it already communicates with the part in the other person or it, I discovered that I am actually afraid and that I learned to discern your fear and my fear, or it's your transference. Right. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Since you, since you, you pointed out like you're inside of me, I'm inside of you. It's actually created a, a shift for me, you know? So, so there's like, I'm really in the kind of experience now of you being inside of me. And actually what that opens up is a kind of deeper listening Right. a deeper connection to right. to you right like it's it's really interesting just that frame that you pointed out you it's beautiful so um so i'm Maybe. just sitting sitting inside of that you know having you sitting inside of me and right. um i what comes up like is is a curiosity so say uh you're with somebody and you feel that uh as they're speaking they're um, holding back and, you know, they're talking about how they're not as visible as they would like to be. And, and, and then you sense, and then you're, you're listening to them in that way you described, you know, you're, there's, you're, you're empty, but you're listening. And then you sense that there's something happening. Like there's a fear from when they were three years old, what would you do then? And, and I get, you know, it's a hypothetical situation and there's probably a hundred different things you could do so it's not like there's a prescriptive formula for this but just as i'm still super curious like in that moment that you could feel that the the origination point of that fear right what what would you do yeah it's like when when um when parents for example when the children come and the child says oh i'm afraid and 
And the parent says, oh, you don't have to be afraid. Everything's fine. So, or the parent says, oh, come, honey. I, I feel that you're afraid. Come to me. That makes a huge difference. The first part is a rational answer with an emotional disconnect. Oh, you don't have to be afraid. But the child is clearly saying, I'm already scared. So I disbelieve the fear of the child, and I tell the child it should be different. The other intervention is, I feel that you're afraid. Come to me. Like I am the parent. Come to me. I listen to you. I create an emotional resonance. I feel the fear of the child. I invite the child into a grown-up moment. Like that I, I am the grown-up. I invite the child into a safe situation. And, and in the moment the child feels felt, it, it relaxes a bit. And then I can talk to the child and say, okay, what really scared you? While I do that and I feel the fear of the child, the child will relax more and will tell me what bothers him or her. And then we can look for a solution. But that's a very different way. The one feels like a repulsion. The other one is like an invitation. Right. And the same thing we also do with grown-up people because not all the parts of a grown-up are as old as the passport says. So that means when somebody comes with a fear and I feel a three-year-old fear, I, I feel the fear. Even Either I say it as an intervention or I just do it while the person is talking. And I invite them, this fear to really touch me because I'm not afraid to feel fear. So I... I allow the fear to really touch me. And in this moment, the nervous system of the person on the three-year-old level gets a, a, an impulse of connection. And that's what creates trust. Because it feels like, I'm not saying you don't be afraid as a grown-up because you need to invest money. I'm telling the three-year-old part of you that you're safe, that I hear that you're afraid. And that, that we will have a look together. That's a very different intervention because this immediately creates trust. The person will feel like a relaxation. Then you feel in the body like something can ground itself, something can open up. And then when the person is in a receptive state for new creativity, then we can look together. Okay, so how can we deal with your, with your investment? But before, we don't want to drop that fear because if we don't address it now two weeks from now you will call me again because you have the next decision to make and you will feel the same fear again yeah. and then you will be shaky again but you will not come more and more like in contact with yourself so that you can say oh yeah intuitively i want to make this investment or intuitively i don't want to make this investment i feel it's right or i look at the numbers i look at the analytics and i look i listen to my intuition i combine my rational thinking and my intuition and i say yes or no but if i'm afraid so i feel paralyzed i don't know what to do and how many people come in moments when they say i don't know what to do yeah, because the question is not about what we are talking about. The question is usually about the place where I cannot feel life, really. Yeah. And that's true for parents when we have 
parenting questions. That's true for business, for intimate relationships. It's basic, and for a client session, if I have a difficulty with a client, there's one part that I cannot feel. And in my work, I take this for myself also a step further and I say, in the moment I start to think in a process, what's the next step? I know I'm not fully connected. In the moment, also with a group, when I feel I ask myself, okay, what are we doing now? Or where is it going now? I know that I lost the full connection to the group. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like a surfer. It's like you're on the wave. And if you lose the wave a bit, it's going to... And then mental questions come up about the process. Yeah. What I'm saying now, I know it's, it's very refined, but I think it, you need to listen to those symptoms. Well, I mean, I'm aware of the time. I have to let you go. But I think now we've touched into something really, we could have a whole conversation about this, you know, like being attuned to the, the energy of the moment um, and, and um, in a way that it unfolds and reveals itself rather than that abstracting out again and thinking about, oh, what's a process? You know, no, actually, are we in the moment in a way that we're, we're, we're fully intimate? And then, it, and then it blossoms and blooms rather than, yeah, we're getting to a destination. It becomes kind of goal-oriented again. So That's right. Um, That's right. Hey, and but I want to, yeah, go ahead. If you want to respond. One last thing yeah. is I want to uh, highlight also that what you said now also means that for a one-on-one -on -one interaction, I with you now, or I'm sitting with a group. When a group goes into that state of presence. It's the same thing. If there's enough generosity in participants of a group to really listen to one person, be with one person, like it creates such a tremendous presence, which is so healing. And I believe everybody in, in, a, in a very present moment doesn't think about time. That's why you often have the feeling when you're very present, like time passed like that, like now in our conversation, it went very quick. Um, because in a present moment, there is nothing outside. You know, the, the whole story of trauma is that there is always something outside of this moment, in the past, in the future, somewhere outside. When you're really present, everything's inside. That's why in a very present situation, you don't think about the situation because you're completely there. You, your cognition is part of the presence. It's not right. outside of the present. And that's, a, that's an essential thing. I just want to underline what you said. No, but that, that's so important for me. I think that distinction we're making, that this is something that's needed in our times. You know, Somehow for me, it's, the, it's one of the, of the antidote, but it's so, it's so needed in our times to kind of come back into that sense of alignment and that's the right. cognition is also participating in the expression of the moment and, yeah. and not, yeah. Hey, but um, I, I do want to respect your time, but I also feel like we could keep talking for hours. So maybe we need to do that. We need to talk it's again. A second part to this. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, uh, I'll let you get on, but I'm, um, I'm really touched. Yeah. I, I just want to say a huge thank you, Thomas. Huge thank, thank you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Yeah. Appreciate it.